page 1160, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. And then uh, keep your Bibles on that passage for a, a, a later when we uh, come to look at it. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. In this passage, Paul prays for God to strengthen these Ephesian Christians with the power of his Holy Spirit. And so before we come to look at that passage, before our children go to their Sunday school, we're going to sing and we're going to ask for the Spirit to bring the presence and power of Christ afresh in our hearts and lives. I think you've got a little um, appendix. Amen. Well, now's the time for the children to go to their Sunday school. And if you'll stand behind, please do find that passage, Ephesians 3. Let's uh, pray and ask for God's help and blessing as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, just as we've been singing, we pray as we come to your word now that you would cause your word to come alive within us. We pray that you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit, that he would indeed bring new life into our willing souls, that he would bring the presence and the power of our risen Lord Jesus, so that as we're going to see that we would grow up in him, that we would as individuals and as a church be transformed for our benefit and ultimately for your glory. So bless the word to us here and bless the word to our children as they hear it in their Sunday school now. We pray that we might meet with you through your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we need more power. Uh, We're said to be living in the midst of an energy crisis, uh, a power crisis. Because of uh, factors such as the war in Ukraine, we've been warned, haven't we, that we uh, we might experience power cuts and blackouts, uh, energy rationing in these coming winter months. 
Uh, and so governments are scrambling to secure more power, more gas, more electricity, uh, to avoid the lights going out this coming winter. We need more power. And if that's true for our country today, then it's certainly true for the church and for Christians today. We need more power. This was the Apostle Paul's concern and priority as he tells these believers in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, how he is praying for them here in this passage. He prays, verse 16, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. We're jumping into Ephesians this morning. Uh, And so let me tell you that these verses, uh, this section here, serve as a hinge as the connection between what Paul's been writing about just earlier and what he's going to write in chapters 4 to 6. They serve as a connection between the, the gospel indicatives, all that God has done for them in Christ, and the gospel imperatives, how they're now to live in the light of God's grace in their lives that he goes on to outline in verses 4 to 6. You see, if these Christians were to live out the gospel in their daily lives, if they were to continue, as, as Paul puts it at the end of chapter 2, if they were continue to, to continue being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, then they were going to need power. And lots of it. And church, it's exactly the same for you and I here today. If in the words of chapter 4, verse 1, if we are going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, if we are to live out the gospel in our daily lives, in the different situations where God has placed you, then we are going to need God's power, aren't we? Because in and of ourselves, we can't do it. We can't live the Christian life. Paul knows that. And we know that, don't we? And so as we get into this passage, let's follow Paul's example and let's pray for God's power for ourselves, for our churches. And let's pray for God's power, firstly, that we might be filled by Christ's indwelling presence. Let's pray for God's power that we might be filled by Christ's in dwelling presence. If you've got your Bible open, look down at verse 16. Paul prays, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And when we hear Paul praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, you might think, hold on a minute, I thought Paul's writing to Christians here. And we're assuming Christ is already dwelling in their hearts through faith. 
So does this mean that Christ sort of comes and goes in their hearts, more like a temporary lodger rather than a permanent resident? Now, you see, when Paul prays that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, he's not praying that Christ would take up residence in their hearts for the first time. Rather, he's praying that these believers would know more of Christ's indwelling presence, that they would be filled with Christ's indwelling presence in their hearts and in their lives. And that word dwell there means to make a home, to make a home. So think of it this way. Imagine scrimping and saving uh, in order to buy your first home. I know I get it in this day and age, it's harder and harder than ever, but just kind of work with me here. You're scrimping and saving and you manage finally to cobble enough money together and you buy the only property you can afford and which can only be described as a bit of a doer-upper. Um, the roof's leaking and the floorboards are uneven and the walls are mouldy and the electrics don't work and the plumbing's broken. But apart from that, it's perfect. Um, and most importantly, it's yours. You own it. And so you move into the, into the one just about habitable room in that house. And you go to work making the, the house a home. You go to work making it habitable, livable. You get to work on the house. And you know, in the same way, when Christ first takes up residence within us, when we first become a Christian, we could all be described as spiritual doer-uppers. It's true that fundamentally... We are immediately transformed. We become new creations in Christ the moment we repent and believe. But it's also true that we are not completely transformed, isn't it? When Christ, by his spirit, when he first comes to dwell in our hearts through faith, he finds the spiritual, the the moral equivalent of leaking roofs, broken boilers, uneven floorboards, Rubbish everywhere. And so, by his spirit, through his word, he goes to work on us, doesn't he? He goes to work on those areas of our hearts and our lives which aren't in a a worthy, a, a habitable state. He goes to work on our speech. He goes to work on our thinking. He goes to work on our attitudes. He goes to work on our actions. He goes to work on our habits. Slowly but surely, by his spirit, through his word, he goes to work on us so that every part of our hearts and our lives become truly his own, become habitable for him, become a dwelling in which he is truly at home, truly comfortable in, truly welcome in. That's exactly what chapters 4 to 6 are all about. In chapters 4 to 6, Paul writes about the radical, practical way in which Christ transforms every part of a Christian's life. Our thinking, our speaking, our attitudes, 
our relationships, our marriages, our, our parenting, our working, our everything. And then as, as, as we're filled more and more by the indwelling, transforming presence of Christ as individual believers, we are then together as a local church, in the words of chapter 2, verse 22, we are together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you see, this is what Paul means when he prays for these believers, that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. He's praying for them to be filled more and more with Christ's indwelling presence by the power of the Holy Spirit for their transformation and for the church's building up. Now this prayer serves both as a challenge and an encouragement. It serves as a challenge for the complacent and an encouragement for the despondent. Firstly, this prayer challenges the complacent because it means that there's no shared ownership when it comes to Christ's dwelling in our hearts. You know what shared ownership is, uh, don't you? It's where you purchase and you own a share of a property. You know, you, you buy 25%, you buy 50% and you, you rent the rest. The rest of the property is shared or is owned by the landlord. Of course, you're able to live in the whole property, uh, but you don't own the whole property. And when Christ saves us, when he takes up residence within us, his desire, his purpose is to make the whole of our hearts and lives his own. But if you're anything like me, then the temptation is that we say to Jesus, well, let's enter into a shared ownership agreement. We say, you can have control of this, this, and this, but I'm keeping this, this, and this. Whether it's to do with our work, or our relationships, or our leisure time, or our ambitions, or our sexuality, or our hobbies, or or whatever it might be, we're always being tempted, aren't we, to to keep some area of our hearts and our lives under lock and key. And we say, okay, you can can have control, you can live in that area, that's okay, but I'm keeping this to myself. But the reality is, Christ doesn't do shared ownership Christianity. It's not an option. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he desires to dwell in, to be at home in 100% of our hearts and our lives. And therefore, if there's things in our lives which the Holy Spirit has convicted us are wrong, but we're refusing or we're struggling to repent from, if we've got complacent in our Christian obedience, then this prayer challenges us, doesn't it? Because it reminds us that every area of our lives are to be opened up to Christ's indwelling, transforming, cleansing presence and power 
so that verse 20 and 21, God may be glorified in and through us. This prayer is a challenge for the complacent, but it's also an encouragement for the despondent. Perhaps when you first became a Christian, when Christ first came to dwell in your heart through faith, perhaps you noticed immediate changes, and perhaps you stopped swearing, perhaps you stopped lying, you stopped cheating, you stopped stealing, you found some immediate changes, you found that just sort of immediately things were different, you found them quite easy perhaps. But here you are this morning and perhaps Christ's renovation work in you has, has slowed right down. And perhaps you've seen those programs like Grand Designs. I love a, a Grand Design program. And um, at the start of the project, you see these owners who are so excited and so optimistic. And they say, oh, it's, it's only going to cost 100 grand uh, and we'll be done with it in three months. And then you have the advert break and Kevin MacLeod comes back. And we're, we're 500 grand later, we're 12 months later, uh, two heart attacks, three project managers, 2,000 cups of tea later. And this, the work is still nowhere near finished. And um, you get a clip of Kevin MacLeod and he's interviewing these despondent, uh, exhausted owners. And they're now saying, I just don't even know if we're going to get it done. We feel, you know, it's, it's just not happening. It's so slow. It's so hard going. And perhaps here you are this morning, and, and as much as you want to be filled with Christ's indwelling, transforming presence, and perhaps it feels like his renovation work in your life has, has slowed to a snail's pace by your struggles and by your sufferings, and by your sins. Here you are, you've been a Christian, a, a Christ-indwelt one for X number of years. And yet you're still struggling with the same, same old sins, same persistent sins. And at times you're despondent, you despair of yourself, you wonder whether or not you will ever reach completion as a Christian. But brothers and sisters, that is exactly why Paul prays, doesn't he? That is exactly why he asked the Father that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit. Because he knows, just as well as we know, that in and of ourselves we can't change. That the Christian life isn't a kind of self-help, self-build project. That if left to ourselves, the work will grind to a halt. We will fall away. We will give up. And that's exactly why we need God's power at work within us through his Spirit. And God's power is not some kind of nine-volt battery of spiritual power that keeps dying, but it's a, it's a nuclear plant of divine might. It's that same power, as Paul writes earlier, that raised Christ from the dead. That same tomb-busting 
Satan conquering, sin defeating, life never to die again power. It's that same power that is available to us, that is at work within us by the Spirit. That is able to enable us to overcome those big sins, to change those bad habits and to endure to the end. And so like Paul, let's pray. Day by day, here's a challenge for you, day by day, let's ask the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he would strengthen us with his power through his Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ would dwell more and more in our hearts through faith. And as you pray, we can be encouraged, verse 20. We can be encouraged knowing that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. As you pray, we can be encouraged that not only is God able to answer this prayer, to fill us more and more with Christ's indwelling, transforming presence, But we know he's totally committed to finishing his his grand design in in his children, in you and I. Paul writes in Philippians 1 that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So firstly, let's learn from Paul's example and let's pray for God's power that we might be filled by Christ's indwelling presence for our transformation, for the church's building up, and ultimately for God's glory. And then secondly, let's pray for God's power in order that we might be thrilled by Christ's immeasurable love. That we might be thrilled by Christ's immeasurable love. Have a look down at the second half of verse 17 with me. Paul prays and he, he says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. These uh, believers for whom Paul is praying had already experienced the love of Christ. They had been rooted and grounded in love. The very reason why they were Christians in the first place was because of God's great love for them in Christ Jesus, as we've been reading and singing about this morning. But having already been rooted and grounded in love, notice what Paul doesn't pray for them here. He doesn't pray that God would love them more impossible he doesn't even pray that they will love God more even though that's a good thing to pray for now do you see incredibly what Paul prays for is that these believers would have power to grasp to comprehend to be thrilled by the enormity of Christ's love that he already has for them 
He says that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. It may be immeasurable, thankfully, though it's not unknowable. So for a few minutes, let's just remind ourselves of something of the the dimensions of Christ's love for his people. His, His love for you, if you're one of his this morning. He speaks about the breadth. Think of how broad the love of Christ is. You know, the conservative political party likes to describe itself as a broad church. It says, we, we appeal, our policies appeal to a wide range of people. Although at the moment it seems to be appealing to nobody and alienating everybody. But in contrast, you see, the love of Christ for his church is truly broad. It's truly wide. This is what Paul explains in chapter 2. Uh, where once these Gentile Ephesian believers were alienated, were strangers, were without hope, were without God. They were far away. But now, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, they've been brought near. And just take a little look around you this morning and see something of the breadth of Christ's redeeming love. To redeem all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of cultures, old and young, black and white, poor and poorer, reconciling us together to God and to one another. The breadth of his love. And then think of the length of his love. That Christ's love for his people is from eternity past to eternity future. If you're a Christian here, this morning then chapter 1 verse 4 even before the creation of the world God set his love upon you in the Lord Jesus perhaps that verse is very familiar to us but it's amazing isn't it that even though he knew exactly how you and I would turn out even though he knew how we would fail him and let him down and sin against him yet he still set his love upon us and chose us by his grace. And even now, despite despite the fact that our love for him is so inconsistent, we're, we're so up and down, we're so hot and cold, yet like he himself, Christ's love for his people is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's not dependent on our performance. This is just how much he has chosen to love us. Whatever trials, whatever difficulties, Whatever discouragements, whatever disappointments you might be experiencing right now, we can be encouraged, we can be assured, as Paul writes in Romans, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The breadth of his love. The length of his love. Think about the height of the love of Christ. We've already been thinking and singing this morning about chapter 2. How we, all of us were as low as we could have been spiritually. Spiritually dead. Actively disobedient. Children of wrath. But, chapter 2 verse 4, because of his great love for us. God who is rich in mercy. He's made us alive. He's united us to Christ. 
He's blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in Christ. His love has lifted us. Lifted us out of the the slimy pit. He's raised us up with Christ. And his love will continue raising us up until that day when Christ returns. And in the words of chapter 5 verse 24, until that day when we are presented to him as a radiant church. Without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. But holy and blameless. But we're only able to enjoy and experience and be thrilled by the breadth and the length and the height of Christ's love because of the depths of his love for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Out of the depths of his love for us, the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, though he was in very nature God, didn't hold on to his rights and his privileges as the eternal son. But he willingly came into this world. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here then is something, a little reminder of the breadth and length, the height and depth of Christ's love that he already has for you if you're in him by faith this morning. If you're not yet in him, if you're not yet a believer, then here is a love to be enveloped into, to be embraced by as you turn from your sins and as you trust in him. And the reason why Paul prays for these Christians, that they'll have power to to comprehend, to grasp, to be thrilled by the wonderful love of Christ, is because he knows that unless God continues to pour out his love into their hearts by the Holy Spirit, that these believers will have too little appreciation, too poor an experience, of the love of Christ. And not only will this result in them missing out, but also it, re- it will result in them not growing up, not maturing as Christians. Do you see, he prays, verse 19, that to know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Uh, What does that mean? What does being filled with all the fullness of God mean? Well, uh, Paul uses that same phrase just over in chapter 4. Just cast your eyes down to verse 11 with me. Let me just read verses 11 to 13. Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So according to Paul's prayer here, it's when we really and truly know the love of Christ, 
not just in a kind of intellectual head knowledge way, but in an experiential, heartfelt way. Then, Paul says, then we will begin to mature. Then we will begin to grow up as Christians and as a church. Because it's only when we begin to and continue to comprehend, to be thrilled by the love of Christ, that we are then empowered, strengthened, to put the instructions of chapter 4 to 6 in practice. It's only when we are thrilled by the love of Christ that we're then able to love others, however different or difficult they may be. It's only when we are thrilled by the love of Christ that we're able to forgive others, however much they may have hurt us. It's only when we are thrilled by the love of Christ, when we're able to bear with others, however annoying they may be, as we're reminded of how Christ bears with us, as he fills us with his love by his spirit, then we're able to to bear with others. We're able to speak kindly to others. We're able to, in the words of chapter 5, verse 2, to walk in the way of love. Paul knows that unless we are continually, day by day, being thrilled by Christ's love, unless the Holy Spirit assures us day by day that we are God's beloved ones, we will then not able to to live properly as God's holy ones. And so rather than sort of being restrained when it comes to comprehending and experiencing the love of Christ, Paul says, no, 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 you need to pray for it. You need to ask God that he would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being to comprehend with all the saints what is the enormity of Christ's love. And then you will be able to put chapters 4 to 6 into practice. Then you will be able to live out the gospel in your lives. Well, here then is Paul's priority in prayer for these Ephesian believers. He prays that according to the riches of God's glory, he would strengthen them to be, he would grant them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner beings so that they might be filled with Christ's indwelling presence so that they might be thrilled by Christ's immeasurable love in order that they might be able to live out the gospel and for this ultimate purpose do you see verse 21 not simply for their benefit not simply for their church's benefit but for God's glory to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Maybe we, may we be helped in the coming days to, to pray this prayer for ourselves, to pray this prayer for our churches, for our transformation, for the churches building up, and ultimately for God's glory. Let's uh, pray together.